This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, joined me to talk all about Australia's economy in recession. We also talk about the dire need to establish a Federal Anti-Corruption Commission. Then, Dr Manu Saunders, an insect ecologist at the University of New England, joined me to talk about what native pollinators are getting up to in our gardens and ecosystems this spring and summer. We also talk about how to participate in the wild pollinator count. Then, finally, former Victorian Emergency Management Commissioner Craig Lapsley joined me to talk about the findings of the Bushfire Royal Commission report. We discuss what was just handed down and what we must do to prepare for the bushfire season. Craig has been advocating alongside fellow emergency leaders for climate action to put climate change at the centre of Australia's bushfire and natural disasters response. It's great to welcome back onto the show Dr Richard Dennis and thanks so much for joining us today, Richard. No, thank you. I'm, I'm not much of a Melbourne Cup punter, so you haven't, um, you haven't dragged me away from too much. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. Neither am I. I wouldn't even know how to bet on anything, so there you go. Um, now, let's talk about, uh, well, first up, maybe we'll start with the federal um, budget because that was something that we had really been talking about, you and I, in previous chats um, because the government hadn't really revealed any kind of amazing plans to stimulate the economy out of this recession. Certainly that was the approach of the last um, government in 2008 when we saw a massive financial crisis. That was the Labor-Rudd government. Um, And we were wondering what would be the kind of comprehensive strategy of the Coalition-Morrison government. And obviously their cards are now revealed. Um, It was to some or to many potentially quite disappointing in the sense that um, although there is money being spent, it seems to be money that um, is unlikely to have the desired effect, Um, particularly when we look at the the coalition bringing forward these tax cuts, which will largely benefit high-income earners. um, And and really, uh, obviously, it's debated, but um, certainly most people would understand that that's not really going to do a, a huge amount in terms of lifting Australia out of a recession? Oh, look, absolutely. Um, well, let's start with the good news. Uh, you know, for the last 20 years, economists like myself have said budget surpluses aren't the be-all and end-all and, you know, don't be too scared of a budget deficit. Be more afraid of unemployment than budget deficits. And for 20 years, we were told we were wrong. For 20 years, we were told we were crazy. Ironically, told this by people who hadn't studied economics, uh, but it turns out everyone's a Keynesian in a crisis. Um, <laughs> and, you know, here we are, the, the, the government that was elected to solve a debt and deficit emergency in 2013 uh, delivered by far the biggest budget deficit uh, in modern history, and well, they should. So it's great that the government uh, is spending hundreds of billions of dollars and ignoring decades of its own rhetoric about the dangers of debt. That's great. But we need to have an honest and important conversation about on what. So I fear we're a bit caught up on the size of the government spending and we're not paying enough attention to the shape of the spending. To be clear, spending hundreds of billions of dollars will create jobs. There's no doubt about that. 
spending hundreds of billions on tax cuts, spending hundreds of billions on a gas-fired recovery, spending hundreds of billions of dollars on anything will create some demand and create some jobs. The question that we need to ask is, of all the ways to create jobs, what would be the best things to spend money on? And of all the things to borrow money to build, which things would deliver lasting benefits for us? So we can use the, the economists who said, don't worry about the deficit for 20 years, have still got some good advice the Conservatives don't want to listen to, and that is, let's now look not just at how much is being spent, but on what, and why don't we look for projects and policies that create a lot of jobs per million dollars spent in the short term, that is, they're labour-intensive, and that deliver lasting benefits, uh, things that in 10 years' time we'll look back on and think, well, I'm glad we've got one of those. My favourite example is all the Art Deco ocean baths up the east coast of New South Wales. A lot of money was spent during the Great Depression, not just creating jobs, but creating infrastructure that helps us out nearly 100 years later. It's not complicated. No, it's not. And it leaves a legacy um, of a, another time. And it is an, really an unrivaled opportunity. We haven't seen an opportunity like this in a very long time in terms of the things we could do if we had some kind of creativity, some vision, um, and perhaps thinking outside the box in terms of the traditional areas that um, the coalition government would spend on, but even a Labor government as well. Um, I know that Anthony Albanese is very excited by infrastructure, given he held that um, shadow portfolio for quite a long time, and he's um, you know, very excited about road and rail, for example. But we did see you know, the coalition government go to some of the very predictable areas of spending, um, like construction, um, those so-called shovel-ready projects that can get off the ground really quickly, looking at roads. Um, so what are your thoughts on the types of sectors and areas that the government, the federal government, has chosen to put their money into? Look, I think we have to start with what's our objective before we can talk about what sectors we like the most. So from my point of view, what are our objectives should be, but these are democratic questions, I think we should be focusing on creating as many jobs as possible per, per dollar spent and creating things that deliver lasting benefits. Now, they're my criteria. Maybe the government's got different criteria, but... If so, they haven't said what they are. Saying we should build infrastructure is kind of meaningless. Like, of course we should build some infrastructure. No one said we shouldn't build some infrastructure. And we were in the middle of building quite a lot of infrastructure when the pandemic hit. Unemployment is not particularly high amongst the infrastructure builders, but unemployment is very high amongst a whole bunch of people in the arts, in entertainment, in hospitality, in tourism. So, sure, I'm not saying don't build a road or don't build a bridge, but could we all just please stop pretending that if we build two bridges instead of one, all the people in the tourism industry are going to get a job? Because they're not. They're not. They're not. They're not. And everyone knows they're not. So, yeah, I don't know what the government's objective is in spending $200 billion in the next 12 months, but it's clearly not 
to create as many jobs as possible because if it was designed to spend to, to create as many jobs as possible, they'd be spending it on projects in regions that have high labour intensity in regions of high unemployment. We know that. So we have to be careful not to fall into my hospital's more important than your road. Uh, build a hospital, build a road, but let's not pretend for a minute that those big construction projects in which more money is spent on concrete than on labour, those projects are not going to create a lot of jobs, particularly for the specific humans who've become unemployed in the last mm. 12 months. We know that. So, so yeah, I'd say focus on labour-intensive projects, focus on things that will deliver lasting benefits. Um, you know, maybe some of that involves pouring some concrete, but let's not pretend that if we pour enough concrete, all the unemployed tourism workers will get a job. Mm. Well, there's a line from your July piece in the monthly Wheel of Fortune, um, which is very illuminating of this point. Um, you say, there's a simple reason conservatives spend so much time criticising public spending. It's the easiest way to avoid having a public debate about what we should spend money on. And so it did remind me of this tension in the budget. It feels like um, we've seen the government say, well, yes, of course, we need to spend money. We're going to go into debt. This is, um, you know, absolutely uh, expected. And apparently Treasury will be expecting um, the total level of Commonwealth debt under the Morrison government to surpass uh, $1 trillion in the near future. So there's kind of an acceptance that money needs to be spent. But then we also see other um, messages from them as well saying, oh, but we can't afford that. We can't, you know, the, the money runs out when we're deciding just how much to spend. And as we've discussed in previous shows, there's a line drawn somewhere and that line is kind of drawn behind closed doors with a kind of unknown public strategy. It's a privately held strategy and we don't get to have that um, public debate we, we certainly can speculate about it, but we're not really engaged in terms of, well, what should we be spending money on? Um, so how do we have that public debate and how do we actually push the government to think about um, representing the interests of Australians? Because if you look at an issue like climate change where the vast majority of people want it to be dealt with, they want money to be spent on renewable energy, for example, um, you know, that's an area of consensus in a public sense in, in terms of money and priorities, and yet the government um, hasn't reflected that in the federal budget. Um, yeah, look, <laughs> how do we fix democracy? That's a good question. <laughs> um, look, I, I think key to it, I mean, ultimately, representative democracy is about uh, accountability and priorities. And uh, there's no right thing to spend a couple of hundred billion dollars on. Right? There's no right thing. There are better things and there are worse things. And at the start of this crisis, this government said, hey, we're just going to shovel money out the door real quick. We're going to do it through this thing called JobKeeper. Um, you know, we're going to, the economy's going to snap back in six months' time. We don't have time to come up with a plan. We don't have time to debate uh, what to spend it on. We've got to spend it now. I've got to give it to my friends. Trust me. Okay, well, we did. Well, guess what? 
the economy's not snapping back. <laughs> government mm. doesn't talk about snap back anymore. No. Uh, and it and it turns out that giving money to the people that the, that the coalition wanted to give money to at the beginning of the crisis hasn't actually been enough, and more importantly, isn't going to be enough going forward. So, you know, how do we fix democracy? I'm not sure. How do we have a debate? How do we have a meaningful debate about? public spending, fiscal policy in this climate, uh, my advice to everyone is is keep it simple. When the government says we're doing this to create jobs, we just all have to ask how many and how come you think that's the best way to create jobs? Where's the evidence that says giving Richard, a high-income bloke who lives in Canberra where unemployment's low, how's giving Richard a tax cut the best way to create jobs? You're the treasurer you know, Mr. Friedberg, please explain. So I think we have to ask simple questions and we have to demand simple answers. And we just, it's boring, but that's what we have to keep doing. You don't have to prove that your ideas are better than Josh Friedenberg's. He has to prove that he made his decisions based on good evidence. And so far, he hasn't been pushed to do that. Like, where is the evidence that suggests that giving tax cuts to high-income blokes in the inner city like me is the best way to help unemployment in regional Queensland. Now, the Coalition loves to rage about inner city elites. Well, on behalf of the inner city elites, let me just say thank you for the big tax cut. (laughs) It's very, very, very generous of the Coalition. But they're the ones saying... We've got to help the real people out there and the real electorates. Like, I I live in the Canberra bubble. Why are they giving me tax cuts? Why, of all the things to spend public money on right now, is giving Richard, who lives in the Canberra bubble, a tax cut the best idea Josh Frydenberg can think up? So whether we're going to change his mind or not, I don't know. But we've got to make other citizens, we've got to make other voters see that this government is spending more money than any government in modern history, and that's good, but they're not really being pushed to explain on what. Imagine if someone said, I'm going to spend a fortune on you for Christmas this year, and you said, oh, can I tell you what's on my list? And they say, no need. I've already (laughs) thought about it for you. I'm just going to spend a lot. You should say thank you. You know, or, or imagine a CEO of a company going to their board saying, I'm going to spend a fortune building new factories and the board says what kind of factories oh, i'll let you know i'll yeah. let you know i'm just i'm just here for the praise on spending a lot like when did that happen when did the liberals <laughs> want praise for spending a lot rather than making a careful case for why they want to spend it on the things they want to spend it on mm. well that's very very well put richard um because it is true there isn't really a clear case, um, and I don't think Josh Frydenberg has really been put on the spot in any meaningful way. He certainly hasn't responded in a way that provides accountability or transparency, and that's something that we have seen um, a number of journalists remark on is the coalition's um, real allergy to transparency and accountability on any kind of um, fiscal issue, including when they decide to spend lots of money on certain electorates for uh, electoral purposes. But one thing I did want to touch on before we leave this um, discussion about the shape of the stimulus and what 
we should be spending things on. I did want to highlight some of the areas that have received reduced funding and what would happen if we decided um, to restore their funding or to even increase it. So um, some of the areas that we have spoken about in the past um, are areas like childcare workers um, and, and the aged care sector, which is certainly female dominated. But there's another sector that um, we've seen increasing announcements almost weekly and sometimes daily around job job losses that are slated to happen that have been um, put forward, and that's in the university sector with a number of um, academics, both casual and contract academics, um, who won't be, you know, receiving a renewal or will even be um, terminated and made redundant. So there's there are some sectors that are truly um, greatly under threat and that seems to have a real effect on our society, not just our economy. And I did want to ask about, um, you know, these sectors, including the university sector, because it has really been such a key component of Australia's prosperity. Oh, look, absolutely. And, you know, let's let's be clear, um, unemployment's going to be high for the next couple of years, according to the pinko lefty communists at Treasury and the Reserve Bank and Josh Reidenberg himself. So unemployment's going to be high. And what we know is that youth unemployment is going to be particularly high because what happens when firms stop hiring is that they basically stop taking people in at the bottom. And and that's usually young people in leaving school or leaving university. So we know unemployment is going to be high. We know youth unemployment is going to be high. There's no better time. There's no better time for society to introduce free education, even if it was only temporary, than right now. So that people that wanted to do apprenticeships, people that wanted to go to university, people that wanted to go to TAFE, we say to them, well, we know there's no jobs out there now. So here you go. Why don't you spend the next couple of years getting skills? And how about we employ a lot of people to give you those skills? So education is very labour intensive and young people are going to, there's going to be more young people looking for jobs than there are jobs available. So if, and it's a big if, we were taking economics seriously, if we were trying to efficiently allocate scarce resources, we'd be really keen to get young people into study and we'd be really keen to invest in a labour-intensive industry like education. But, of course, we've done the exact opposite. <laughs> Actually, we're, we're, we're laying people off in the education sector saying, oh, yeah, there's not enough money from foreign students, so we're going to have to sack you, rather than say, hang on, stick around, and how about we bring new, more young people in or, or more middle-aged people, anyone that wants mm. to upskill rather than be unemployed. So the economics of this is stunningly simple, but the symbolism is all wrong. And that's what politics is in Australia. We talk about the economy all the time, but we don't think about economics at all. It's all about symbolism. So in Australia, modern Australia, we're rich enough to kind of obsess with, with symbols rather than reality. And, of course, the symbol of a job is a bloke wearing high vis and a hard hat. And the government, I mean, if the government was serious about job creation, it would do press conferences standing in front of an aged care centre saying aged care is one of the biggest employers in the country. We're keen to make sure that not only are all old people looked after, but we create a lot of jobs. So here we are today making a jobs announcement in aged care. Oh, no, 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 that, that would look all wrong. Real jobs are blokes in high-vis and hard hats, Richard, don't you know? Mm -hmm. Press conferences for jobs have a particular look to them in Australia. 
So the fact that we could create a lot of jobs in aged care or we could create a lot of jobs in education, leaving aside that they're public sector jobs, leaving aside the fact that they're highly unionised and the last thing the government wants to do is create jobs in the unionised sector, it just wouldn't look right on television to have a male Prime Minister, a male Deputy Prime Minister, a male Treasurer and a male Finance Minister standing out the front of an aged care centre with a bunch of older women thanking them for all the jobs they've created. So, yeah, you know, it's not about economics, it's about symbolism, and the symbol of jobs in Australia is a hard hat and high vis. So we're just not allowed to talk about the fact that public spending on health and education uh, or aged care would create far more jobs per million dollars spent than pouring some concrete out and some part of Australia that doesn't have very high unemployment. Mm. Um, I want to touch on a couple of things before we get to a federal anti-corruption commission. So one of them was the job maker hiring credit announcement, which relates back into what we've just talked about, about what is the solution to youth unemployment? And you've provided a very clear and um, coherent and rational argument, which is based in economics. Um, But this other um, solution that the coalition has put forward in their budget, which says that from the 7th of October, eligible employers will be able to claim $200 a week for each additional eligible employee that they hire if they're aged between the ages of 16 to 29 and $100 a week if um, the employee is aged between 30 and 35 years old. um, And that will last for one year and um, to be eligible, that employee that they're hiring must have been on the job seeker payment or youth allowance or a parenting payment. So, you know, this is a, a, a kind of policy that the government has suggested would um, provide an incentive, a kind of an, a reason for, for job um, employers and, and companies to hire younger people because, we, as you say, there is youth unemployment and it's particularly high in a number of areas. Um, and that's obviously also because we have seen retail and hospitality decline and that is areas where that they are areas where a lot of younger people um, work as well. But some people have suggested that um, by putting in putting in forward this particular incentive, it's actually um, providing other kind of perverse incentives, which are to actually um, shed older workers in favour of newer workers because and younger workers because they will be incentivised to do so. What are your thoughts about um, these kind of economic indicators and incentives, and whether that is a fair critique or not? Well, more history says it's a very fair critique, both in Australia and and internationally. I mean, the whole rationale for giving me a tax cut to help the economy is they think giving me a tax cut will give me an incentive to change my behaviour. Well, guess what happens when you give employers an incentive to change their behaviour? They take it. So, yeah, there's a real real risk that, and, and again, we've seen it with exactly these sort of policies in the past, uh, that some big retailers, for example, get very excited uh, about laying off a bunch of older people uh, and employing a bunch of new younger people. And churn like that doesn't help the economy. Churn like that doesn't create jobs. Churn like that doesn't deliver lasting benefits to the economy. Um, but, you know, in the short term, 
you know, the government can say, look, we're doing something, we're doing something. But the something they're doing, there's a pattern here, the something they're doing is giving money to groups that they like most, and that is a wage subsidy to particular employers. So, look, even Treasury, uh, even Treasury have said that the, the number of additional jobs that will be created as opposed to the churn, uh, the number of additional jobs that will be created is around 45,000. Well, you know, let's, let's get things into perspective here. There's 25 million of us here in Australia. There's more than a million people unemployed or underemployed. 45,000 is very, very small for the amount of money they're spending. So, again, mm. you know, democracy thrives on accountability. Where's the evidence that of all the ways to spend money, this subsidy would deliver the most jobs per dollar. Where's that evidence, Treasurer? And, of, of course, there isn't any, but, you know, it's boring to keep asking, so we stop. Mm. Well, it says that it will cost $4 billion for that um, period. So it's, uh, yeah, it's still a substantial amount of money that they've decided to spend on something that perhaps could have been spent elsewhere for, as you said, a greater number of jobs. Um, let's move to Queensland because of the Queensland election we just saw over the weekend with um, Anastasia Palaszczuk re-elected for a third time. We did see Scott Morrison focusing a lot of his energy and attention onto Queensland and it's also been quite an ideological focus for the coalition because of um, the idea about coal and um, a kind of obsession with mining and certainly um, and those kind of hard hat industries which people have decided you know Queensland symbolizes in particular and um, I wanted to ask about you know, what is the significance um, of this Queensland election and the fact that a Labor government has been re-elected and were there economic factors at play? Oh, absolutely. And I promise I'll answer that question in a sec, but let me just yep. make one quick point before we move on. Um, the kind of transparency I'm talking about for, you know, why are we spending money in the way we are is exactly why we simultaneously need a Federal Integrity Commission. All, all expenditures of public money should be done carefully, they should be done transparently, they should be done honestly, uh, and, and we as citizens should always be able to have faith in the process that sits behind these decisions. So whether it's a, a – and I'm not suggesting the Treasurer is corrupt in, in choosing to spend $4 billion on a wage subsidy, I'm simply saying I don't think it's a very well-thought-out idea – but we do know that someone recently decided to pay $30 million for $3 million worth of land. And we need transparency over those decisions uh, just as much as we need transparency over how, how the government's spending this stimulus money. You know, democracy thrives on high expectations. Democracy needs accountability. Uh, and whether it's, whether it's small decisions about who to buy land off or big decisions about who to give stimulus to, uh, we, we need transparency and accountability uh, in, 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 all, uh, in all of those decisions. Now, to segue, you know, we know what happened in Queensland under Joe Bjorki-Peterson all those years ago. Mm. There wasn't a lot of transparency. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, on the weekend, what a phenomenal result. Uh, uh, nearly a 5% swing to Labor... 5% swing to Labor, uh, this is the, they're now entering their third term. Uh, and I think, what, why? Well, I guess we'll be raking over the coals of that for a while. But 
you know, it was quite clear that Anastasia Palaszczuk was was really the loudest voice in Queensland saying, we will put the health advice first, we will put the health of Queenslanders first, and uh, you can't have a strong economy with a sick population. Uh, you know, the, the opposition leader, Deb Frecklington, had repeatedly criticised the Premier for refusing to open the borders. The business community up there were insisting on the borders. And, of course, Pauline Hanson, uh, whose voters are particularly old and particularly susceptible to mm. coronavirus, she was the one saying the whole coronavirus thing was exaggerated uh, and, and flirted with a court challenge to the border closures. And, of course, it was Pauline Hanson who saw her vote collapse, uh, which, you know, you know, fell by nearly half. Uh, so I don't think it was economics that drove the debate, but I do think it was good a uh, good good management uh, of the economy well defined and by that I mean nearly uh, well a vast majority of Queensland voters supported the border closures uh, even even liberal voters who voted liberal still said they were happy with the decision to keep the borders closed uh, so yeah I think it's fascinating especially we'll have to wait and see what happens for, with, with with Trump on Tuesday but mm. uh, you know, uh, uh, is coronavirus good for incumbents? No, I think it's good for incumbents who do a good job. Yes. Well, Jacinda Ardern is another example of that. Um, exactly. Mm. And um, in terms of the coronavirus in Victoria, I know we've spoken about this before. I think um, given that we've entered into I guess what some people have called colloquially unlockdown, which is that we're not in lockdown anymore, but there are still some restrictions on in Victoria. Um, people have, you know, I've seen people out and about, um, you know, through social media, getting out, going to pubs, having, you know, stimulating the local economy um, and spending their money, which is great to see. Um, but as you said previously, and I thought it would be interesting to just go back to this, is that, um, you know, the state economy is not kind of like Australia isn't really separated into specific borders. And we did see um, Josh Frydenberg and Greg Hunt and Scott Morrison continually also putting the pressure on um, Daniel Andrews on an in an economic sense to say, well, you should open up because your numbers are the same as New South Wales. And um, Victoria held their ground to a lot of criticism from the business community about um, wanting to open up before we had this um, outbreak, this second wave under control. Do you think that Victoria's situation now, given that we have so few and, in fact, we've had zero cases for a number of days, do you think that vindicates um, that, that economic and social or societal approach to this pandemic? Oh, absolutely. I think that Daniel Andrews can take credit for leading Victoria through one of the biggest uh, crises that we've ever seen and done so in spectacularly successful fashion. Now, of course, just like the federal Labor government really never got a lot of praise for the recession it avoided during the GFC, the coalition are determined to make sure uh, that Daniel Andrews doesn't get credit for the uh, for the health crisis that, that he avoided. But I, I think the voters understand uh, death in intensive care far more uh, clearly than perhaps they ever understood 
you know, how, how fiscal policy saved Australia from recession in 2009. So I think the voters, well, it's quite clear from the polls that the voters supported Daniel Andrews throughout. Uh, the scoreboard speaks for itself. And, and the just horrifying, just horrifying numbers and stories now coming out of uh, England and continental Europe and, you know, one case a second in the United States today, one new case per second. Uh, you know, I, I, I just think that not only was it good health policy, the economic benefits of, of achieving what Daniel Andrews and his government achieved will be enormously beneficial, not just for Victoria, uh, but for Australia. And in terms of the criticism that he's faced, I think the most interesting question is today, why isn't the Prime Minister attacking the New South Wales Premier for keeping Victorians out? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> right? let's, let's be clear, it wasn't Victoria that closed the border to Victoria. The New South Wales Liberal Premier doesn't want Victorians just pouring into New South Wales today. Yet I, I don't hear the Prime Minister attacking her for that. And, and I, I don't actually think she should be attacked for that. I think she should do what Daniel Andrews did and keep taking the advice of health experts on how to handle a pandemic. Mm. But, uh, you know, and, and, you know, again, simple questions. Uh, the simple question the Prime Minister should be asked, the simple question uh, Josh Frydenberg should be asked is, if they were Daniel Andrews, would they have ignored the health advice he received? Yeah. Is, is, that, is that actually what they're suggesting? It doesn't matter that they're saying, well, we're getting different advice from our uh, Commonwealth Chief Medical Officer. That's irrelevant. If their Chief Medical Officer said keep the lockdown in place, are they saying they'd ignore that? Because if so, that's fascinating. And if not, that's outrageously hypocritical. Um, but, yeah, for all the column inches of analysis, uh, we, we're yet to actually pin the Prime Minister down on that simple question. Is no. he really saying he would ignore the advice if that's what he was told to do? Mm. Well, it would be great to see that question asked and answered or continually asked if it wasn't answered appropriately, which is probably more likely. Uh, Richard, I did want to ask about the um, Anti-Corruption Commission, a proposed federal ICAC that we've had, um, you know, as part of the public debate for as many years as I can remember talking about politics. And um, and this is something that the federal government had promised at the last election, and um, Labor certainly had a far more comprehensive and robust model than the coalition did, and many people criticised the coalition when they released a media release kind of outlining their very, very weak um, anti-corruption or integrity commission. Uh, we did see Helen Haynes, who is the independent member for Indi, um, release her own integrity commission bill seven days ago. She says that has forced the coalition's hand to release their own draft legislation, which they did so yesterday. Um, and, of course, we've all had, or the people who are um, interested in this issue have had a chance to look at that. Certainly, I know the Australia Institute has been across this issue in a great amount of detail, and yourself included. So I did want to ask about this proposed Commonwealth Integrity Commission and whether it will do what I guess the public expects that an integrity commission should do. And of course we have seen the state 
um, IBACs and ICACs around uh, Australia doing great work and important work in New South Wales and Victoria, for example, very recently. But how far does the federal, the proposed federal um, Commonwealth Integrity Commission uh, go? And what are some of the critiques and criticisms that um, I know the Australia Institute has kind of highlighted overnight Oh, yeah, look, it's, it's amazing. Let's go back a step. It's not that long ago that neither major party in Australia thought we needed a federal corruption commission, and now both do. So that's great. Uh, the government announced in the lead-up to the last election it would have one. That's great. We've finally seen the legislation for their proposal, and that's pretty ordinary. Um, but, again, you know, we've got to, as, as, as citizens, we've kind of got to keep our eye on the prize here the government now agrees in principle that the existing anti-corruption architecture is insufficient and that we need to build some new stuff. Here, here. Mm. What they're proposing is pretty flimsy. You know, I think it's, you know, Labor were calling it the, the, the Clayton's Integrity Commission, the one you have when you're not really having one. And, and unfortunately, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, we, for example, the... The, the bar is set so high to start an investigation that you have to be kind of confident that some sort of criminal law is being breached. And what we've found from New South Wales, corruption commissions and other state bodies is that often when something dodgy is uncovered, even if it's not criminal, but it, it, it looks improper, uh, when you start tugging on the thread, that's when the investigators find, you know, the, either criminal activity uh, and or systemic corruption. But if you won't let them start investigating until there's clear proof of criminal behaviour as opposed to improper behaviour or, or cultural corruption, if you set the test really high, then we don't get to tug on those threads. Um, secondly, they've gone out of their way to make it easier to investigate public servants than the politicians themselves, and I think that will backfire on them uh, quite badly. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, the, the proposal they've put forward is, is timid, it's weak, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. The government now admits that the existing architecture is not adequate, and for years, this government has said, we've already got the federal police. We've already got uh, integrity officers in, in multiple places around the Commonwealth, so don't worry about it. Uh, well, they've, they've abandoned that line. And now we're having a debate about what a good, strong corruption watchdog would look like. So uh, that's a big step. Uh, it's a step that some thought would never be taken, we now need Parliament uh, to toughen that up and then we need to have elections, which, of course, we will have uh, to let the voters decide which kind of uh, anti-corruption watchdog is, is, is actually needed in Canberra. Does anyone, really, does anyone really think Canberra needs a weaker watchdog uh, than, Sydney, than Sydney or Melbourne? That's fascinating. <laughs> No, is the short answer. Um, yeah, well, it's certainly I, I think it has brought things very much um, front of mind when we're talking about things like the Australia Post example with Cartier watches, which um, the CEO, Christine Holgate, has just resigned overnight. And um, people really did highlight, well, of course, um, that didn't pass the pub test, but really there are so many things that um, – 
many politicians across all uh, areas and parties and ideologies have potentially done that could be far worse than what uh, Christine Holgate has resigned from. And yet we don't have a mechanism to investigate this. And also the federal government has reduced the funding to one of the bodies who uncovered um, the sports rorts scandal, which was really, um, you know, wouldn't have been detected potentially if it hadn't had that um, robust kind of ability to look into the federal government. Oh, ab- absolutely. So the ANAO, the Australian National Audit Office, uh, they're the body that uncovered the full horror of the sports rorts. They're the body that found that we'd paid $30 million for $3 million worth of land near the new second airport uh, in Sydney. The Australian National Audit Office, uh, well, let's go back a step. In order to encourage people at Australia Post to work hard and do a good job, we offer them bonuses and watches. And in order to encourage and reward people who work hard at the ANAO, after playing a blinder and uncovering some enormous scandals, we cut their budget. <laughs> like, let's, let's go back to the neoliberal obsession with incentives are we giving senior bureaucrats at the ANAO an incentive to do their job well? No, we're not. We're cutting their budget. We're cutting their budget after they uncover enormous breaches uh, of, of, of public trust. I mean, just yesterday, we, we, we learned that the, that the energy minister, Angus Taylor, his office knew that the, they were making fake uh, allegations against the Sydney Lord Mayor in terms of suggesting that the Sydney Lord Mayor had spent more on travel than the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Mm. Uh, you know, yet here we are, uh, here we are crucifying the CEO of Australia Post uh, rather than actually digging deep into systemic corruption. So, uh, I, yeah, I think I think we've got a long way to go in these debates. But again, I think we as voters have to take our responsibility seriously. We need to stop falling for the, but the other guys are bad too. Again, democracy thrives on high expectations. And if you're not willing, if you're not willing to be critical of people who are, who are, who are breaching our trust and spending our money so poorly, um, then, you know, <laughs> we, we know where that leads. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we have to put partisan politics aside when we're thinking about corruption and waste, and and certainly an integrity office, uh, integrity committee uh, has a very important role to play in helping us to do that. Mm. Well, let's hope that um, given we have seen movement and that Helen Haynes. Um, and Labor and others have, you know, certainly been pushing the government on this, that perhaps we will end up with something far better than what has been drafted and proposed. Um, and Richard, I do want to say a big thank you for taking the time to explain all of these issues for us, because I know that um, and from people telling me that they really do appreciate you um, levelling with them on all of these issues and uh, <laughs> getting to straight to the heart of them. No, I love it. No, thanks for having me on. And, you know, thanks, everyone, for listening because, again, democracy needs us to be actively involved and pay attention. And, yeah, when, when, when people want to ask me about such important things, I'm always happy to chat. So thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au.
And uh, I was just speaking off air to my next guest, Dr. Manu Saunders, who is a lecturer in ecology and biology. She's an insect ecologist at the University of New England. She's also the co-founder of the Wild Pollinator Count, which starts on November the 8th. And um, I was saying that certainly since I last spoke with Manu, which was January the 28th, 2020. So, you know, the pandemic had started, but we certainly didn't realise what was going to happen. Um, We then entered into lockdown and I was saying that uh, I think a lot of Victorians, myself included, may feel now that they are a lot more in touch with the kind of rhythms of their gardens and their surrounds and the parks that they live near. Because, you know, being in lockdown for such a long period, You know, some people only getting an hour of exercise a day, depending on if you're in Metro Melbourne or regional Victoria. We really got out into nature. We were observing our surrounds in a lot more depth and closeness. And um, I certainly noticed um, just how uh, wondrous really um, my garden is and also the diversity of pollinators that exist in our backyards and that's something I'm ashamed to say I did not really realise firsthand until I had the opportunity to um, commune with nature in a more close uh, way and so I'm very excited to welcome back Dr Manu Saunders to talk all of these issues in um, some depth and to get you excited, if you're not already, about spring and pollinators. So thank you so much, Manu, for your patience and for joining me today. No worries. Thanks, Amy, for having me. It's um, really great to have you back because last time we spoke, um, there were some really interesting things that you said that I haven't forgotten about and I've been um, pestering those around me about them. (laughs) So I'm probably not their favourite person. (laughs) <laughs> so, but I'm very grateful to you, so it's okay. Um, but it does highlight that it takes a while to change thoughts and behaviours around the ways that we look at bugs in our gardens and also weeds in our gardens and leaves as well in autumn. And some of the things that have stuck with me um, is around, you know, the value of some weeds, flowering weeds, um, because that is where a lot of pollinators will get their pollen from and Mm. they're certainly drawn to um, these weeds and it's something that I've certainly noticed this spring taking paying a lot more attention is that um, you know when you let your grass grow you do see you know dandelions and little white um, flowers and purple bright purple flowers and I know that they are weeds but they are quite beautiful as Mm. well and they do seem to attract um, pollinators so perhaps we shouldn't be constantly mowing our lawns like you mentioned in January (laughs) yeah definitely and I think I mean it's important to also remember yes there are noxious weeds and then there are harmless weeds and so yeah you know obviously things like you know things that are terrible weeds that you should get rid of even if the pollinators love them (laughs) but things like dandelions and clovers and that sort of stuff I was looking in my lawn the other day too and we've just moved into a new house and the lawn is actually quite diverse, which is good for a lawn. Um, but I was just looking in it and seeing all the things, little tiny flowers in there that I hadn't sort of noticed and definitely lots of bees and flies hanging around them. And um, you, you sort of walk over it just thinking it's grass, but there's, you know, multiple types of clovers and little dandelions and other little things that I don't even know what they are. <laughs> yeah, well, it is really exciting, I think, because, you know, we are seeing – 
I guess now in spring, the insects that we know are there, you know, being very active and um, kind of spreading the love, I guess, between plants, because that's certainly something I've been noticing and I've been going out to visit them every day, which is kind of a bit nerdy, I guess, but it's also really exciting because you get to see, well, where are the bees today? You know, what are they excited by today? Have they exhausted all of the opportunities of that um, particular flowering bush yet Um, you know are there new buds coming from a tree and that's what they're getting excited by what kind of native bees like Mm. going and looking at some of these um, flowering shrubs it was amazing to see the diversity of native bees not like obviously hanging out with the honeybees but it was just so exciting to see that really there are quite stark visual differences when you pay attention yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's that, I mean, you know, the flowering plants are the most diverse group of plants on the planet and they just, mm. it really, you realise how many different shapes and sizes and colours and, you know, so many different types of flowers, even within related groups, you know, plants that are related to each other can look completely different. Um, and that's what keeps all these different types of pollinators happy, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, well, it is important to have like, I guess you must need, you know, visual diversity and maybe the fragrances are different, so they Mm. attract different insects. Um, In terms of native bees, because that was something that we touched on last time and I didn't really have a first-hand, you know, knowledge or relationship with native bees when we were chatting last time, Um, not to the extent I would have liked, but now since um, lockdown two times I've had a great chance to um, meet some native bees oh great yeah so I did I did want to ask about a few of them and you know what um, makes them really interesting and why we might um, pay attention to the differences because you know going back to the wild pollinator count that's starting uh, on November the 8th and running for a week you know, that is asking people to pay attention to the different species, to Mm. notice, you know, whether it's a blue-banded bee, whether it's a European honeybee, um, you know, whether it's a teddy bear bee, if you're lucky enough. (laughs) Um, So, you know, what what are some of these more well-known and more common native bees that we might see in our gardens and um, maybe picking out a few that are particularly prominent or um, interesting and how we might recognise them. Mm. So, um, yeah, they're a fascinating group. So there's about um, 1,800 or so, depending who you talk to, um, different species, across. that's across Australia, uh, of native bee. Mm. Um, within, I don't, I don't know specifically around Victoria, but, you know, that varies. So not all species live everywhere, obviously. Um, but they, they range so much in size and habits and what they um, – you know, the resources they need to build a nest and survive and all that kind of thing. So, you know, we've got tiny little bees that are only a couple of millimetres that you probably wouldn't even notice unless you're looking very closely up to the larger, you know, carpenter bees and, and leaf cutter bees and so on, which are quite noticeable, quite distinctive. And they're probably, um, you know, more likely for someone who's, you know, not familiar with insect ID to be able to see and recognise that's definitely not a honeybee, that's definitely something different sort of thing. So it can get hard. I mean, so a lot of them, a lot of the more common bees are little small black bees that kind of just look like flies if you're just passing by and not paying much much attention. <laughs> um, so you really kind of have to get 
your eye in, you know, get that practice of, of watching and watching different types of insects moving around on flowers and you sort of pick up the differences. They do move differently. They fly, you know, native bees will fly differently to flies and they have different shapes and that kind of thing. So you, you kind of just have to get that feel for knowing what you're looking at, which which takes time. Yeah. <laughs> but there's, yeah, there's lots of different ones that um, live quite commonly in urban areas as well. So even though some of the rarer species or the more exciting species, you know, you might only find in special places, but there's quite a few that love urban environments because of all the diversity. Uh, we've got, I just found um, some of the little homolictus, which are little tiny black bees nest building a nest in my lawn the other day. So oh. they're, they're quite happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cute. Um, I was really excited about um, trying to identify them. And I know that some of them do look quite similar. As we've just said, the, there are some that look like flies when they're actually bees. Um, and those might be, you know, mostly black or dark coloured. But then there were some native bees that had um, this really kind of distinct uh, yellow and black pattern that kind of looks like a hoverfly. So some of them are hoverflies, but then there are some native bees that seem that they have the similar patterning to hoverflies. So I was wondering how do we know the difference between some that kind of have a visual, have those visual similarities in terms of their body? Mm. So that's a good question. And it's, it's so basically bees have two sets of wings and flies have one set of wings. So that's kind of the main distinguishing characteristic that you can tell whether it's a bee or a fly. Unfortunately, that's not always easy to see when yeah. it's buzzing around on a flower. So if you can get close enough or you can even catch it and have a, a look at it before letting it go again, you can confirm whether it's definitely a fly or a bee. So if it has, you know, two wings, it's a fly. If it has four wings, it's a bee. Um, other than that, it's so the ho the hoverflies are quite distinctive and they're once you know what a hoverfly is they're very easy to tell so they have that very distinctive golden black banding it's very prominent you can definitely see that there's golden black bands some of them are darker than others but the common hoverflies are very distinctive they hold their wings out horizontally they hover in that very distinctive <laughs> way they're yeah. just amazing so their wings are often invisible because they're hovering so hard yeah <laughs> um, exciting and they have these sort of big bulbous eyes as well which which you don't tend to see on bees so once you kind of work out that that's a hoverfly and recognize it they're very easy to tell um there are some bees that uh native bees that are kind of black but will have like stripes pale stripes or you know, pale white or pale yellow stripes on the abdomen as well. So they kind of might look like a hoverfly. But uh, again, they are sort of different enough that once you get that practice, you can tell they fly differently. If you can catch it and have a look, you'll see it's got four wings um, and so on. And and just the way they move as well, they you can sort of actually see them darting around, whereas hoverflies just kind of hover, if that makes yeah, sense. <laughs> that's true. Because, yeah, I certainly, um, when I was, I was standing like near a tree and then I looked up, I don't know why I looked up, and there was quite literally a hoverfly above my head. <laughs> like, 
it was You're amazing, amazing. <laughs> and it stayed there for ages. And I was yeah. and I had a, long enough for me to take a photo, like because I was in shock. Because um, <laughs> usually I'd you know seen them on more like ground level, and I was looking at them in the flowers and you know the coriander that's gone to seed. Um, oh, I love coriander. <laughs> yeah, well uh, that's where they're currently congregating, so um, they're getting a lot out of the the kind of Butch. wasteland that is my coriander. But, <laughs> um, yeah, it was really exciting. I think hoverflies have probably been my favourite discovery of spring. Um, so I did want to also ask, though, about, well, I guess a hoverfly maybe is a surprising pollinator to a number of people who might think of honeybees and bees in general as being, you know, primary pollinators in, in our understanding of what a pollinator is. Um, so I did want to ask about these unlikely or less commonly understood to be pollinated pollinator insects, some like the hoverfly, but also um, others like butterflies as well. Mm. Yeah, hoverflies and well, all flies, well, most flies generally um, mm. are very important pollinators and yes, definitely haven't received as much attention as they should. Um, and they're, you know, even blowflies are, are quite important pollinators for many species. There are some plants that are specifically adapted to only be pollinated by flies. So the bees can't pollinate them or don't even visit them or so on. So um, there are lots of, lots of different interesting relationships like that flies also have these like most other insects have these dual roles so a bee bees are kind of what we call um, obligate pollen nectar feeders so they that's all they eat and that's what they feed their young so that's kind of the main effect that they have on an ecosystem is is being a pollinator because that's all they eat whereas most other insects will eat lots of different things and often have different diets or, or lifestyles as an adult to compared to what they do as, as a larvae. So they are then having multiple effects on the ecosystem and, and, you know, contributing to multiple services. So, for example, hoverflies, as adults, they eat nectar and pollen, so they're pollinators, but then as larvae, they um, eat aphids or some, some eat plants and so on. So they um, have these multiple different effects. Blowflies, again, you know, can, you know, decompose carrion and that sort of thing as larvae, but then they visit flowers and pollinate as adults. So really, really interesting when you start getting to know the actual life cycles of these insects and realising that, you know, nothing's just a pollinator or, <laughs> you know, just eats plants. They eat sort of multiple things. Mm. Um, I want to ask about um, what, like I've seen a number of insects, um, flying insects that I couldn't quite, you know, pin down and I'm thinking maybe they were a fly, maybe they were a native bee that I just didn't know was a native bee, um, but they're hanging around different kinds of trees. So I was wondering about some of these um like trees that aren't necessarily flowering trees, like they, they have leaves, um, but they don't have flowers. They're not like a cherry blossom or um, yeah. something else like that. So I was wondering why would a pollinator be attracted to trees? Like what, what kind of role do they have, if any, um, around trees without flowers? Yeah, um, another great question. And <laughs> so again, something that um, I think we sort of forget that you know, insects and animals need multiple resources. So a lot of trees, um, even so the ones that we sort of think of as not flowering trees, they do sort of technically have flowers, but they're so tiny that we can't 
see them or we don't recognise them. They don't look like a blossom or what we're used to as a flower. So things like willows and um, plane trees and, you know, liquid amber and those sorts of um, decidu often deciduous trees that are from the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and they, in early spring, just before they get their leaves, they will have these tiny little flowers on them that you can't often see or just as they're getting their leaves depends on the tree um, and these are actually really important pollen sources for uh, bees and flies so even in Europe it's it's known that for honeybee keepers that these are important pollen sources before the peak flowering period starts um, they've just come out of winter they're hungry you know that sort of thing so um, we I've seen uh, even around Armadale we've got quite a few of our street trees are those European deciduous trees and I was noticing that a lot this year walking around the streets and there'd just be you'd walk along and then you just hear the the buzz from somewhere <laughs> and you'd turn around and you know there would be a willow tree or a plane tree or something just absolutely covered in um, mostly blowflies and honeybees but occasionally you'd see some other interesting things mm. so yeah they'll they'll use most uh, insects that depend on pollen that are, that are sort of generalists, which is a term to just mean that they'll, they they need pollen and nectar and it generally doesn't matter what it comes from. So they'll just go seeking and whatever's flowering in the environment in, at that time is, is what will sort of keep them going. That's really cool. I'm so glad you've um, illuminated that for me because I had no idea what was going on and it was... <laughs> I was just standing there looking at it going, oh, I don't know what you're eating. <laughs> it's it's a really interesting because, you know, a lot of those trees are wind pollinated. So people yeah. tend to forget about them and think oh, because they don't need pollinators, then pollinators don't need them. But actually it doesn't necessarily matter how they're pollinated. They're still a pollen source. Mm. So one other question I have around uh, native bees, particularly thinking about plants, was um, tomato plants because I know that people are thinking about, if they haven't already, um, started growing seedlings and growing tomatoes and a number of other things in spring. And I know that the blue-banded bee is very critical as a buzz pollinator to tomato plants. Mm. But what what can happen, you know, if you don't have a lot of blue banded bees is that a possibility like can you are there plants or flowers that you should be thinking about planting in your garden to support the ecosystem as a whole so that you have a diversity of pollinators turning up uh yeah definitely so yeah tomatoes are a great example they have this unique um you know, method of buzz pollination. So they um, have those types of anthers that need to be vibrated. So similar to Dianella plants, which are native plants and, you know, most other Solanaceae that we have lots of natives of. Um, but yes, they need a special bee or, or a special type of insect that can actually grab those anthers and, and shake it. And you might see other insects on the flowers, but if they're not actually shaking those anthers, um, they may not be pollinating it. It also depends on the variety. You know, tomato, some tomatoes are self-fertile a bit, um, so you'll probably still get some tomatoes, but if you want lots, then <laughs> you need to be thinking about how to keep them around. So, again, veggie garden, backyard veggie gardens are really easy to to keep as, as a diverse system in a sense because, you know, unless you're – growing to, <laughs> to sell commercially and you want to maximise your your one crop or whatever, um, the whole point of a backyard veggie garden is to have lots of different things. So mm. your your 
creating this habitat and lots of different resources, you know, make sure you've got lots of flowering plants around it as well that, you know, may not necessarily be edible, but they're great for bringing insects. So all those, um, a lot of the seed packets you get that say bee and butterfly mixes, things like alyssum and cosmos and poppies and all those kind of things, they're great for just scattering around and, you know, keeping lots of flowers going and making sure you've got that diversity through the season as well. Like don't just concentrate all your flower power in one <laughs> in one <laughs> month or one season because then there'll be nothing for the rest of the year. So, you know, insects can have multiple generations in a year. So if they, if they turn up because there's lots of flowers, they'll get all excited, reproduce, lay all their eggs. But then mm. by the time the, that new generation emerges, if there's no flowers left, then they've got nothing to eat. So um, it's ensuring that persistence of the population so that then they're around the following year when you want your tomatoes pollinated again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have noticed there are, you know, peaks and troughs and I'm trying to reduce the the kind of like slow periods um, by adding in some of those flowering shrubs and all those kind of things. But, mm. yeah, it is really interesting. And one of the things that um, I was thinking about and we did discuss earlier was around the mixture so of um, native plants but also flowering um like flowering native plants, but also um, non-native plants as well. And I know that you said previously, you know, it's not necessarily all about native plants. Like, of course, you should have some, but how, how would someone philosophically or strategically approach a garden that they at least have control over? Um, because obviously we don't have control over all the land, um, although you have seen gorilla gardeners out and about in nature strips planting things anyway, which is kind of cool. Um, but how would you, you know, approach things just on a broad scale about thinking about your local ecology? Because I know there are land care groups that, you know, create um, seedlings of local native plants mm. that are more rare. And is that something that, you know, people might think about when they're um, planting new plants in spring and in other seasons? Yeah, it's it's a it is a good question, and I think it, I mean it really there is no right answer. It it really does come down to your personal preference and your personal philosophy as well. And mm. you know, from from the pollinators' perspective, they mostly don't care. They'll <laughs> they will quite happily go to native and exotic flowers. Um, so it's it's really up to you what you think I personally love I just love native plants um so I try to plant most of my garden with as many natives as I can um and you know we've just bought a new house so and the original garden was actually full of horrible exotic weed things yeah, yeah. <laughs> that are known environmental weeds that can be spread into, into the environment and so on and because we have a bushland patch near our house and so on so that's why I'd made the choice to dig the whole thing up and start again and replant with natives. But that was just my choice on the given the context and given the type of plants that were already here. But at the same time, I've just planted some lavender because I love it and the bees love it. And they do. <laughs> so it's, it, you know, I don't think you need to be specifically purist about it, but if you love native plants, go for it. And there are so many um, places you can find out what your local nursery is. We have one of those here as well that propagates local rare and endemic species. And it's actually exciting, you know, going, oh, I've, I've got an endangered plant growing in my front yard. <laughs> <laughs> 
So in that sense, I do, I love that. And, and it will create habitat, not just for insect pollinators, but also for birds, you'll find you'll get a lot more little honey eaters and other types of little birds that will start frequenting your garden if you've got lots of those big um, nectar producing natives that they love. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I wanted to ask a little bit about um, feather grasses because you did remind me about, you know, wind pollination and how weeds um, can be spread across, you know, huge areas of land. <clears throat> and I think one that I was, you know, interested in when I came across um, my land care group talking about Mexican feather grass um, was that people were still planting it in their gardens. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> And I was shocked and appalled when I read just how easily it was to spread in the wind when it was planted. Mm, definitely. So, yeah, what what would be the, you know, when we, because I think people go, oh, well, that's drought hardy and tolerant and so I'll put some grasses in my my yard, these long, longer grasses, not your typical, you mm. know, mown grass. Um, you know, are there, how many of them are noxious weeds or or bad pests and how many of them are, you know, okay to put in your yeah. gardens? Um, a lot of the exotic grasses are not great in terms of <laughs> weediness. So, yes, I would I would be, uh, you know, unfortunately a lot of the things that we um, have handed down as, oh, these are good plants for your garden have come from previous generations and eras before we knew that they were grasses you know they were kind of established as these are good plants to plant in your garden and then we kind of just keep planting them and bunnies keep selling them and so yeah. on so yeah. um it's it is hard to um sort of get your head around that but it's there are so many native grasses and amazing native grasses that are very cool and um, you know, you can find them at local nurseries and land care nurseries and those sorts of things. And I think I definitely, you know, grasses are great habitat. They're also, you know, some grasses do produce pollen, which are also good for pollinators, like I said before. So don't not plant grasses because you think they're boring. But if you're keen to put grasses in, I'd sort of do a bit of research and find out where you can get some native species, um, you know, if there is a land care nursery near you or something and talk to them and just, yeah, double check what type of grass you're putting in. Even if you buy it at a nursery, it might not necessarily be the best thing to put in if you care about weed spreading. Yeah. And also I think I've, I have noticed and I haven't been able to identify what grasses they are. So maybe they are native, but I know that a lot of um, new property estates and developments are planting those longer grasses to be kind of ornamental, yeah. low you know, attention type of plants. So it would be important if you did buy one of those properties to make sure that you didn't have a weed, um, you know, type of grass that was going to do damage to your surrounding area. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, because it's kind of hard to know what kind of um, strategy or knowledge the property developers had when they were putting in these grasses either. Yes, <laughs> it, it exactly. I, I like to think that they are becoming more environmentally aware and, you know, some are working with with you know, ecologists and landscapers and whatever to get better fits, but mm. definitely, you know, developments up even up to sort of 10, 10 years ago and backwards, um, they, yeah, there was a lot of exotics yeah. <laughs> planted then that have now since become weeds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very disturbing to watch. And as you said, there are so many great native grasses, which I've 
um, had the great pleasure of talking about on this show previously. Um, I do also want to talk about um, the wild pollinator count, which we did touch on very briefly last time we spoke. Um, and I was excited to bring you back now that we're in spring. And as I said, um, things are really happening. Um, our gardens and environments are thriving, hopefully. Um, and we are noticing, I think, or I certainly am, and I'm sure others are noticing different insects. So now is the time to put that into practice and to see if we can identify the different species. And I know that you've co-founded the Wild Pollinator Count with colleagues and that it has been running for quite a number of years already um, and that it is coming up and coinciding with Australian Pollinator Week, which starts on uh, November the 9th and it's running through till the 15th of November. So uh, first of all, I wanted to ask within that context, what is the purpose for from the scientific ecological perspective of ho holding an event like a wild pollinator count? Um, I know that a lot of people participated in the backyard bird count and that mm. was something that they got excited by. What particularly um, are people going to be contributing to when they provide this type of data and observations from wherever they are in Australia, but when they're participating in the wild pollinator count? Yeah, so we, um, we've we been running for um, about four, four or five years now, I can't remember. <laughs> um, and so it's twice a year and it's there are sort of two main aims and one is to increase that public knowledge of how to identify insects and how to get engaged with insects and so on, which is more of a passive, you know, we just want to be a conduit, I guess, for getting people um, more engaged with insect identification. Um, and then the second part of it is that we are collecting this data, so twice a year, every year, um, in spring and autumn, and we, we're collecting these plant and pollinator interactions. So it's not just an observation of an insect somewhere in a, in a place at a certain time, it's an insect on a flower. So that is a an anecdotal evidence observation of a, an interaction, an ecological interaction, which could potentially be leading to pollination. So it's, it's that next step of understanding more about ecosystem function than just presence, absence of, of a species, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we're collating these patterns and we're um, – so now that we've got enough um, – counts I think we're up to our 12th count maybe off the top of my head <laughs> um, we can now start collating those patterns and we can say you know look at what plants are being visited by what pollinators in different parts of Australia what are the most common visitors you know what might you see in temperate regions versus other regions and so on so we're excited to get into that stage now of actually looking at the data and analyzing some of those interactions and we'll be sharing that obviously when it um, eventuates it will take some time <laughs> but but it is really exciting to to be um, you know collating those observations of actual interactions rather than just the observation themselves of the the you know abundance or whatever yeah no it, it makes a lot of sense to want to understand what they're you know attracted to what they're revisiting um, and I believe it is it a 10 minute time frame per day that someone would be observing yeah, you can do as many counts as you want, but each count is has to be 10 minutes. Um, so the count, uh, just a few details, it runs, so it starts this Sunday the 8th and runs through to the following Sunday the 15th. So you can 
do a count on any of those days. You don't have to do one every day or at all, but <laughs> you can do one on any of those days as long as it's warm and sunny. So we we have to standardise the observations somehow. And so that's why we make sure that everyone's kind of collecting in the same type of conditions because you won't see um, the same insects in you know, different weather conditions and you won't see many insects at all if it's cold and raining and or snowing or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, it has to be a warm, sunny day, 10 minutes, just find some flowers or a single large flower, whatever plant you've got, watch that for 10 minutes and note down what you see and then submit it on the website, which is uh, wildpollinatorcount.com. And are they filling out a web form or a PDF form? It's a web form. Um, yep. It's just like a Google form that's embedded in our website so you very easy categories you don't have to identify it to species the categories are very general so we've separated out honeybees european honeybees and the blue banded bees because they're quite recognizable and then we just have all other bees and then we have all flies all wasps and so on so you don't need to know exactly what species it is you just have to be able to tell what different type of insect it is mm. well that makes things a lot better because <laughs> um, I was a little bit apprehensive about my ability, <laughs> especially the flies. Um, but and yeah, if, I, if you're not sure, you can if you can get a photo um, that's that's clear enough, and you're not sure what you've seen at all. You have completely no idea. Feel free to send it through to us, but you don't need a photo to submit an observation. Right. Well, that's good to know. Um, I know that you know if it's something that you're really unsure of. Um, you are interested, I think, in that because, you know, it could be something that um, is introduced perhaps and I think that's something that perhaps you might want to be across as well. Um, yeah, so for either, yeah, actually for both sides, the plants and the pollinators, um, you know, the, it doesn't matter if the plants are exotic and, and we can work that out. It's not a big deal. Um, if you've seen an insect that you think um, – you know, might be some kind of invasive species or a pest in your region. So, you know, you can look up what is known to be an issue in your region um, and I'd suggest contacting the DPI. So bumblebees are the classic example. If you think you've seen a bumblebee anywhere on the mainland, please contact <laughs> your local biosecurity yeah. <laughs> because they're not supposed to be here. Um, so, yeah, do keep an eye out for those sorts of things. But, um yeah, there are quite a few different species that could could potentially be introduced. Yeah, and in terms of moths and butterflies, are there particular pollinators in those families that you would be interested in? Um, yeah, either any both groups have have lots of pollinators, um, and they're they're very interesting. I mean, there's a range. We still sort of don't really know a lot about um, the pollination ability of many of the species, but they all, most of them visit flowers and you'll often see them on flowers. I gather there's a bit of a caper white migration happening in some places at the moment, so you might, <laughs> some people in some parts of Victoria might see them. Um, and moths also at night can be really interesting uh, pollinators. Nocturnal pollination is really important and, again, quite poorly understood. Um, I found, I just discovered I've got a tree in my yard. It's a pittosporum tree from New Zealand um, that is actually moth pollinated by moths at night. But I was watching, I didn't realise what it was at first and I was watching it through the daytime when it was flowering and it's got these really dark, almost black-red flowers which mm. is quite an odd it's you know it's not a common flower color that you see in nature 
Um, and it was covered in honeybees mostly. And I was thinking, oh, you know, that, that was all I was seeing. But then when I looked up and realised what it was, I worked out it's uh, moth pollinated. And I went out at night and it was just absolutely a smorgasbord <laughs> of moths going nuts on these flowers. It was very, very amazing to watch. Wow. <laughs> So, yes, you don't, you might, you know, even if you see flowers being visited by insects in the daytime, it could also have different things on it at nighttime if you want to go out and have a look. That's cool. I did actually see a study released from James Dory at Flinders University uh, yesterday about some native bees foraging at nighttime and that mm. they finally caught them and were able to observe them in um, quite a lot of detail. Yeah, that's it's very cool that that's out. There's been, you know, it's something that um, bee ecologists have kind of observed and talked about for a while, but there's never really been enough evidence to really know what's going on. So it's really great that they managed to get that um, published and we can start to find out a bit more about that. It's a very cool interaction. Mm -mm. Um, and just finally, Manu, I'm going to, I just want to ask about a political subject, um, probably political in a not traditional, non-traditional sense. And I was wondering, because we did mention it before, and I'm still having debates with people quite frequently about how to tackle some of those weeds we spoke about that are bad, that you do want to get rid of. Um, and I think a lot of people might, might have traditionally gone to, you know, your grandparents and your parents might have gone to the spray bottle because that's what was done and to, you know, um, get some Roundup or something else that was easily available and still is easily available at um, their local hardware store. Mm. Um, and then there are, you know, some who are very much against that and, you know, you can find natural ways. What are your thoughts about that and how using chemicals um, affect our pollinators and whether there is clear evidence that, you know, doing those types of things that were done before um, perhaps aren't the best idea mm. moving forward. Yeah. Well, there's there's clear um, scientific evidence now that we know that pesticides kill insects of all kinds. So that's not really, um, you know, that's that's known it's a known fact yeah. and we know that that these impacts are it's not necessarily just about killing the insect outright they can have you know sublethal or longer term effects where they might be affecting um you know an insect pollinator might get exposed to a chemical and survive and fly off but then it might affect their reproduction ability or it might affect their um the next generation or so on so it's it they definitely chemicals are definitely affecting pollinators in that way um, they can also have longer term indirect effects through, you know, soil transfer and all that kind of thing. Herbicides um, are, again, more of an indirect effect. So while they may not directly kill a pollinator, um, it's more about that you're, if you're using them long term and, and permanently sort of in a system, you're removing all those resources from a system that pollinators may rely on and um, also not really understanding the, you know, there hasn't been a great deal of research into that longer term effects on things like soil function and that which has broader effects on the ecosystem. Mm. Yes, certainly. That was what I was, I think, most concerned about as, as well as like the long term effects on the soil mm. and how that might affect the plants around you know, wherever you're putting chemicals um, and trying to get rid of weeds. Yeah. So I, I think it's more about just, you know, sort of having a, a – <laughs> 
the way you ha- the attitude towards the way you manage land, I guess, in a sense. And it's, you know, sure, there are going to be some occasions where there is, you know, some noxious weed that is absolutely strangling an environment or, or, or affecting ecosystem function. And we sometimes have to use chemicals to get rid of them. But it's moving away from that attitude of just spraying constantly all the time just because that's what you do when you garden, yeah. <laughs> which is, is not how we should be gardening anymore. <laughs> no, yeah, very, very true. Well, I'm glad that um, I've got the science behind me now on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to weaponize it to my advantage. Um, it's so been really, really, really fun to chat with you, Manu. And um, if people want to get on board the Wild Pollinate account, which I do hope they do, they can go to wildpollinateaccount.com and all the information is up there. Um, and they can also see you and your colleagues on Twitter because mm-hmm. um, you're very active on Twitter. And you also have pinned to the top of your Twitter profile um, a link to a blog post by Dr. Tobias Smith. And um, in that blog post, there's a very detailed taxonomic guide to bees and other pollinators. And um, it's particularly bees, though, and it seems Mm. to be very helpful and very detailed in terms of um, if people want to get really nerdy and specific, they can um, go to the bee guide and uh, see if they can find it in there as well. Yes, definitely. It's a, it's a really great guide that Toby's written. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Manu, and uh, it's been lovely to chat with you once more. Thank you again. It was great to talk to you again. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. It's a real privilege and honour to speak with Craig and um, I do thank you, Craig, for joining us today to delve into the findings, the recommendations of the Bushfire Royal Commission that we just saw handed down last week, late last week, and also to talk about these issues from your perspective um, with your great depth and um, breadth of expertise in emergency services. So thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, good morning, and it's a great opportunity. It's probably it's very timely actually when you look at the weather that's across Victoria because it's starting to sort of come in uh, that summer feel about it. So uh, it's it's a good chance to talk about fires, but it's also I think um, the Royal Commission was a little bit broader than fires, although fires were the you know, the fires of last year brought it um, to the need, but they tried to make sure they looked at um, natural hazards so a little bit broader, which I think is relevant when you think about climate change because it's just not about fires alone. Climate's got an impact on uh, on all sorts of uh, weather-based emergencies and, uh, you know, Australia being, I suppose, a country that suffers all of them in one way or another. Absolutely. And we had seen uh, floods as well being such a a major issue and massive hailstones in uh, Queensland and Victoria recently that did huge amounts of damage to people's properties. So there are um, many, many features of climate change and certainly um, it can be direct and indirect um, as a cause. Uh, And it's true, as you say, they were focusing on natural disasters, although it was certainly born out of the experience of the summer bushfires that we just saw. Um, I did want to take us back a little bit to your time as um, Emergency Management Commissioner and when you were also working as Fire Services Commissioner, because you have that um, history and understanding, and even previous to that, um, you know, you've worked in this field broadly for a long time. So, you know, Victoria 
here, particularly locally, we have seen a number of really significant fires, even in, you know, a 30 something year old's lifetime like myself. Um, you know, I remember vividly the Black Saturday bushfires, even um, subsequent to that huge fires um, in Y River over the summer as well. So there were many points um, during your, even your term as commissioner, where we did see quite severe bushfires that um, certainly, you know, we, we prepare for, but sometimes even our preparations can't um, or won't do enough to be able to deal with what the the damage is. So I did want to ask you about your experience seeing these fires and also other natural disasters kind of accumulate and um, become increasingly more severe and more frequent and get, I guess, just a broad sense of your observations about how things have travelled from your experience looking at Victoria and coming up to, you know, a summer bushfire season, as you said, in, on a very warm, balmy 30-something degree day today. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When you look back and the way you, you've sort of framed that, it, it, there's something that goes back in history. And, I mean, Victoria's always, or Australia's kind of a fire-prone country, so they've always had fires. But the frequency of them is really interesting. So if you go back in the 2000s, and I was at CFO as a deputy chief at the time, um, you know, 2002, 2003, we had fires that burnt, you know, like nearly 2 million hectares of the, of the Alpine National Park and the parks around it. Um, you know, burnt for days after days, but really didn't reach out into communities. It was deep-seated in the bush. However, only years after that, 2006, we had Grampians fires. And I remember the CFA strike team at 11 o'clock at night coming out of the Grampians, and they got caught in a, in a firestorm that they wouldn't have expected to occur at sort of 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was dark. It was in, in the night period. And the strike team leader... Um, thought he'd lost the whole lot of the five trucks. So it was strike teams, five trucks. And they came out, and his instruction was, uh, we'll all travel at the same speed. No one's taking their foot up the accelerator. Get the white line under the driver's um, view and just drive. And they drove through the head of a fire that they said they'd never seen in the like it. That was 2006, and we roll forward to what this year, and the same sort of things were happening in the, you know, the, the fires around certainly the southern part of New South Wales. I actually think that was an early telling us that the environments were changing. The weather patterns have changed, and I can remember briefing people saying we're now seeing fires at night as aggressive as what we were seeing in the day from decades before, and something had changed. We are in the middle of a drought, so 2006 was mm. the middle of the drought, and it went on for another... and went on for years. Now... That, the, yes, people will say we've had droughts, Australia's had droughts, yes, we have. But I think now when you look back and look at the science behind it, you, we're in the middle of, of something significant and it was the change in our climate. We mightn't have fully known it then, although we've probably been told for decades it was happening, um, but I think we saw the, the landscape change and even now the soil dryness in many parts of Australia has never gone back to where, where it's been before. So we've still got drier soils now and that's, that's a change in our clim climatic conditions without a doubt. So those sort of things I think you've got to put in, in, in understanding what we mean by climate. And, and look, I always say if you're not a climate change believer, that's fine, but there is science to say the climate is changing and I think we've got to observe that and understand it. And the, the other one in climate, and, you know, I think we've got to probably move on to what the, the fire issues are, but 
Climate, to me, will see more frequent, more intense weather events. So more frequent, more intense. And you look at the hailstorms at the weekend in Queensland. Classic, they went from really warm weather, um, firefighting-type weather, straight into hailstorms. So, and what, what will actually happen or is happening is the extreme weather will be more extreme. The hot will be hotter. The dry will be drier. The wet will be wetter. So we'll move through these things where we will go from you know, extreme floods to extreme dry conditions in drought and extreme bushfires, and we'll move through them in cycles that are really fast. That's a driver of climate change. And I, and I think we can see it, we can feel it, we can understand it. The fear you've got is if this keeps going, where are we going to be in 15 years or 20 years or or whatever? Yeah, even even in four years, you know, I think mm. it's going to move that fast that, that we've definitely got to. And, and I always say, look, we shouldn't be scared, but we've just got to be taking this stuff serious because it is it is serious. It's changing our environment dramatically. Mm. And from your perspective, you know, I, I know – the Black Saturday bushfires in 2009 are still very much um, in people's minds and of obviously the most recent ones as well. But your, your kind of role as um, Fire Services Commissioner was just after and I know that you played a role in implementing some of the changes that were recommended after those bushfires. Do you think that we, as a, as a state, as a Victorian state, um, made significant progress in terms of the ways that we were approaching bushfires in particular um, and some of the important changes that were necessary after 2009 were made. And obviously, you know, this is constantly evolving and we need to continue to change and improve. But, you know, from your experience looking back, do you think that we have made substantial changes um, since that point? Oh, we have, yeah, yeah. 2009 was... Um yeah, my job was when I was put into the fire commission was just a change job. Like it was about going and make things change, change it for the better. Um, and we had momentum. We actually had the community wanted change. Yeah, you know, the media were were chasing us down to make sure that we were driving change and supporting us. Um, governments expected it from both sides of government. It, it wasn't a political issue. It was yeah, you know, we've got a problem. Let's go out and fix it. And I and I think that was really good to see the, the bipartisan support. If that's the right if that's the right term to get governments that weren't playing politics. They were actually they were really focused on community outcomes and it was it was one of the most productive parts I think Victoria saw uh, in many, many ways. You know, we built community fire refuges, never done, first in the world. Um, we established no, no but safer places to make sure people had um, somewhere to go. And, and no but safer places is even interesting because in a fire, what's safe? You know, when you're in the middle of it, a, a place of last resort. We established, you know, personal bunkers that people could make a choice when they're building to put a bunker next door. Victoria is the only one to lead that. And seriously, I think that's a, a, an absolute game changer in the right circumstances for the right people. You know, we, we put an app in because we've got technology to do so. And the app was one of the best apps in the sense that it, it was an all emergencies app. It wasn't just a fire app. So you could see the weather or other things, thunderstorm asthma, you know, on a hot mm. summer's afternoon, we could put warnings out about thunderstorm asthma on the same app as what was a fire app. Fantastic. Uh, you know, we changed decision-making, we brought the agencies together, we coined the thing about we work as one and it still lives really strong today about working as one and the we is just not the agency, the we is about the community and everyone together. So we joined things up that were never were not being done and I think collectively what, what we did in Victoria was world-leading, uh, without a doubt. California watched us, played with us, supported us, 
I was on a webinar in um, Phoenix only last week, and the words, and there was another fellow from California, he was almost talking the Victorian talk. It was it was really interesting hearing him say the things we, because you know, we, we shared with them and we made sure we learnt from them, but they learnt from us. Mm. Shared responsibility, that it wasn't a brain game. It wasn't pointing at people. It was about bringing things together. So the warning system that, that now the, the next Royal Commissioner said we need to take it another step, but we put that in to get a, a consistent warning system. Lots done, lots done, but it's one of these things that evolves because you know, when you do it, and I will say that I think Victoria led the way um, because they felt it experienced and lost 173 people in an afternoon and, you know, 2,500 homes, 5,000 people without a place to sleep, you know, it was it's it, it it really did resonate that Victoria led it and we did it. And when I say we, it wasn't it wasn't a small group of people. It was a big group of people that were really committed and supported at every level. So it was fantastic. Um, yeah. But again, Victoria's Royal Commission. Not every other part of Australia picked everything up because sometimes they. It was almost like, oh, you know, it won't happen to us or mm. that's your problem in Victoria. You know, it was interesting. Some things were picked up globally. There was other things that weren't. And even, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm never one to judge people, but you think, gee, you missed an opportunity there. A couple of other states didn't do things that we would do. But on the same token, if you look at Queensland, bushfire hasn't been a, the biggest threat that they, they have. Queensland's normally a cyclone a big wind event with a cyclone or a big rain event with flood. Mm. And I spent some time working for Queensland Fire and Emergency Service last year where they had fires that had been so destructive and burnt rainforests that have never had fires in them. And you're talking about, you know, rainforests that are now destructive, that, that you know, fire went in and dis- was caused so much destruction in a rainforest that's normally, you know, full of moisture. <laughs> so that and that was a real telling point to me to say things are changing dramatically when you start to burn rainforests to that extent. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So Queensland now have got a, a bushfire um, problem that they never had or never thought they had for for decades, and that's where we're seeing the change in this climate and the change in vegetation, fuel management. You know, there's lots to this because it's just not climate. Climate's one of the key drivers, but there's also policy about land management, fuel management, where we live. We've got increased population, more people are living close to the bush. You know, so we've got to look at the way we build and live close to the bush. It, it, it is complex. It is complex. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it does take me to one of those other areas that um, I'm sure you also were are familiar with and were familiar with um, overseeing. And I know that this also became a, a big talking point over the summer and no doubt will be part of any strategy moving forward. And that was looking at um, the volunteer firefighting groups and services like the RFS in New South Wales, like the CFA in Victoria, um, which are volunteer services. Um, there are some paid uh, employees in the CFA, uh, for example, down in regional Victoria. But now that we are seeing these bushfires um, increasing in duration and the bushfire season starting earlier and um, you know large fires burning out for a very long time, um, 
you know, having these volunteer firefighters, um, you know, they were so taxed over the summer. You know, there were so many people who had no break um, and they were all volunteers and taking time out of work and requiring requiring wage subsidies from the government um, so that they could continue to do this important work. Um, so one of the things I did want to ask from this uh, a regional Victoria and rural Victoria perspective um, was that I know that, you know, my family, you know, played a key role in establishing a CFA in a very, you know, rural um, area. And, and in these areas where I know people still live of my family, they say, you know, it's really hard to maintain these smaller CFAs um, that, that are completely volunteer-led. Um, and how do we continue to support them and I know that the Victorian way of doing things has just recently changed and it's become Fire Rescue Victoria but I did want to ask from your perspective how you think that would work and it will work in upcoming bushfire seasons where we do see these bushfires breaking out um, obviously in metro or outer suburban areas but still very much also in areas like Gippsland which is a country area um, you know and and whether we are thinking enough and whether this Royal Commission um, has addressed that uh, key role of the volunteer firefighter, particularly in these more rural areas. Yeah, that's a, that's a complex one. The, the fundamental principles of a community is to have people that participate in the community. And one of the, one of the greatest things is to have organisations like the CFA or the New South Wales RFS that allow people to really hop in and participate in protecting their community, um, coming together as groups and building that that true team approach. Now, you know, CFA is one of them. SES is another, the local footy club. And what the Royal Commission, um, I think, have captured in this one is about community resilience. And if you want to have a resilient community, you've got to have an engaging, connected community and you've got to have organisations that appreciate people and give them purpose. Now, in volunteers, there's three terms, I think, that are important. One is volunteers, the person who volunteers. Volunteering is the activity they volunteer to do, and volunteerism is the culture they bring. And I think we haven't spent enough, and we, this, will be, this will be really fundamental if we're not careful, is to understand the culture of these communities. And, and you, you think, you know, that it, not every community is diverse, you know, if I live in mm. South Melbourne, I'm, I'm very much different as a diverse community than if I live in, and, and I shouldn't pick out a little country town, but some, you know, some farming community that simply probably got a fire station left as their community centre point where they might have had years ago a school there, a public hall, and even some of the some of the communities now are clever enough to say our fire station is our public hall. It's a place where we come together. So the the the, um, the centre of of what it is, it's all about community, and volunteering is a really important part of the community. And you know, I, I think, um, and I've watched the structural change in Victoria, and I do get that you know we're in growth, and there's got to be you know a fire risk in Victoria that's more focused on the urban environments and the growth in the outer metropolitan areas. But any government that fails to acknowledge what CFA and the other volunteer organisations need will be a failure of significance, and we've got to do better at that, and we've got to do better to bring people together. Now, in there, you've got a lot of challenges because not everyone's in growth. Like, the, Australia's growing in population, but not every corner of, the, of, of Australia is growing. Some, some communities are in decline. 
yep. some communities are, you know, at you know, static level. But and, and that's something we need to be really clever about. But um, how do you work with communities that may, you know, may not be the the hub that they used to be for all sorts of reasons? However, they're still a community and they've still got a heart and they've still got people and they need um, support from governments and others to make them successful. But the other thing about, one of the most successful things about volunteers is don't over-prescribe it. Give them freedom. Let them be full of initiative. Let them do things that that they they can do. Give them structures, support them, acknowledge them, but make sure we're diverse. One One of the challenges is to make sure some of these... And you'll get it in football clubs. Uh, you know, I've watched regional football where they've changed from, you know, football clubs 20 years ago to be football netball clubs. And that's, to me, been a really successful model to get, um, you know, where it's not it's not netball playing at one end of town and football played at the other end of town. We bring it together, and it's, it's, it hasn't just happened. It's been over the last two decades that it's happened. So all of a sudden you've got um, more... The football club is now dealing with... Uh, more of a diverse community, more inclusive. They're all really important things. But we've also got to get some of these more traditional cultures to be understanding of what that means and make sure that it's successful. Because, you know, if I'm the new community member and I knock on the door and I I haven't got a traditional name in the community, I should be still as welcome as the person that's been, you know, the fifth generation in that community. And I think there are some challenges there that we do need to, to step up to. But in the main... What, what you're asking is absolutely spot on. You know, the strength of these organisations is volunteers and the strength of community is volunteers. Mm. And is the heart of a community, particularly in these rural areas, is the CFA? And that's why I think, absolutely. yeah, when we saw these um, issues around, you know, tension between the MFB and the CFA, it did get a lot of people very emotionally invested because of um, the people in regional and rural Victoria's do feel so invested and so connected to their community through the CFA. Yeah, but it's also disrespectful. I mean, mm. to actually have conflict between um, two organisations that deliver the same basic services to a community, we need to get out of that. We, we need to we need to show absolute respect for what people contribute, whether they're, you, you know. Whether you're paid or not, you're still professional. A volunteer yeah. might not be paid, but they still come to the table with a professional attitude and do everything they're asked and probably more. Mm. Uh, and that doesn't matter. Yeah. So I think I think that debate is is still a little bit raw in Victoria, mm. uh, but CFA needs to be fully supported. And you know, I, I know the, the current chief of, of uh, CFA, Gary Cook, who's you know, grew up on a farm at Edai. You know, um, what his father was a captain of the brigade. He was there was five boys in the family, all of them in the fire brigade. They still are today. You know, and and Gary's moved from obviously the farming community to be the the, the chief of CFA at the moment. And you know, he, he knows exactly what it takes to build communities. Uh, and they're the, they're the sort of leadership people you need in those roles as people that actually feel it, understand it, commit to it and want people to be successful in, in the roles they, they participate with. Yeah, so it's really important. Mm, absolutely. And I know that um, you were a former Hamilton CFA Deputy Regional Officer, so, um, you know, are quite connected in with so many different um, rural Victorians and Victorian areas, given your role as well um, after that uh, with the state-led coordination. Um, moving to the bushfire um Royal Commission's recommendations, 
the final report was just released. Um, and I think it is in, it's very timely, as you said, not just because we are heading into another bushfire season, but it does bring to mind the, dis- the kind of discussions that we were seeing um, when you and Greg Mullins and your colleagues from the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action came out, um, and I remember watching the press conference myself in November 2019, I think it was, um, and you were talking about the fact that, you know, what you were saying had fallen on deaf ears, and this was before we really saw the the kind of effects of the summer bushfire season we just saw. Um, and so I think a lot of people felt quite um, galvanised when they had former commissioners with such great expertise and experience um, feeling confident to advocate to government, to advocate to other departments and commissions and inquiries um, because, you know, you were doing things that were potentially, unfortunately now, seen as political, even though they're certain climate change should not be a, a political issue, um, an ideological issue, but they certainly have now had that layer um, placed upon them. And so you're voicing these concerns from the community, but also from a position of expertise, I think was quite well received. So I wanted to understand now, given that you've um, been advocating with um, your fellow emergency leaders for climate action um, for quite a while, and the initial group has expanded um, quite substantially as well, when you, when you were talking about this um, Royal Commission and when it was being established, we were talking about the terms of reference, were they broad enough? Now looking at the final report, from the experience and, and the position that you were in, you know, last year, have we made progress? Have we seen some shifts in the language, in the ideas, in the recommendations? Um, obviously, the commission is an independent commission, um, but the, the federal government and state governments will clearly be looking to this um, Royal Commission for their next steps. So, from your perspective, maybe from a broad perspective, and if there are in individual areas you think that they've um, particularly made great progress on, I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts. Yeah, look, I think the first one is we, when we formed that group, we were very respectful of the current chiefs and commissioners because we knew that they had a job to do and they would be briefing ministers and the, you know, the, they, they've got a political responsibility to brief up as well. But we also knew there'd be something they may not have been able to say or they may not have been able to pursue. So that's why we said we'll come together and do it. And, and I think I think it's been an effective group. Uh, we're also very diverse in, in the group that's in there, um, in a sense, we've all got fire backgrounds, but some are really focused on public land forest management, um, right through to you know, probably Greg and myself that have got a really broad aspect of where we've been and what we've done. So, so that was important to get the context of that, and we weren't political. However, we were seen by some because the Climate Chancellor Council was the one that you know said, "Hey, we'll, we'll help you do some things come together." So, put that aside. Um, I think we did. Uh, hopefully we did it respectfully, but sometimes the issues were pretty raw, so it was fairly as a matter of fact, but I think that had to be said. Um, and, you know, we were lucky enough we could probably see something coming. It was happening, and not a lot of people were listening in some key places. So it did need a bit of a rattle of the cage, and we got that. We then ran some workshops ourselves to make sure that it was broader than us, and we ran, you know, four major workshops over 150 um, written applications to our group that we then formulated and sent to the Royal Commission as well. 
and also a number of us were summoned by the Royal Commission to to give our own personal um, submissions under questions that they wanted us to answer. So we've we've had lots of input to the Royal Commission. The thing about the Royal Commission, I think it's it's a very good report. It's comprehensive. It's broad. Uh, it's extremely detailed. Uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages. Uh, and it also highlights that there's lots of things still to fix, and some of them are complex. You know, fuel management in this country, land, land management and fuel management will always be a debated issue, and probably rightly so, because, you know, and I have an opinion that the worst thing we can do is, is see what happened last year where we get the fires so intense that they go through the bush and they completely destroy the bush to the point where when that bush grows back, it will not be the same. It won't be the same. Um, we've killed so much wildlife. We've threatened communities. We were lucky, lucky to only lose 33 lives. And when I say that, it's tragic to be one of those family members that have lost a loved one. But the potential of fires could have killed hundreds and hundreds of people. So the warning systems worked, and that's an outcome of the 09 fires. But the Royal Commission itself now has got their next challenge is how do they implement this and how do they get the federal government, and there's some things that are federal government responsibilities and there's other that are state government responsibilities, how do we how do we get them funded, how are they going to be implemented in a timely way, and this won't be just you know, over a number of months, this has got years in it in many instances. Um, broad, and, and I think the Royal Commission's done really well, but the devil's in the detail of how to achieve it now. Now, without going into detail, I'll summarise. You know, they, they identified climate was a key driver. They've gone to land, fuel and fire management issues, complex issues, including how to introduce Indigenous burning, which is a low-intensity fire regime that won't work in every type of landscape. Interoperability across agencies, across states, across borders. A number of the border issues have been brought out that, you know, all of a sudden the Albury-Wodonga community every day participate in that with each other every day that comes to fire and we, we close borders and all of a sudden they can't interact with each other and the health services are restricted and you can't get over there, all sorts of things. Um, what the Commonwealth's got to do, and the Commonwealth was criticised that they didn't step in, but the legislation didn't allow them to step in, which is really interesting. Everyone went, well, you know, where, where's the Commonwealth? But the legislation didn't allow them and in the end it was almost a forced hand between the states and the, well, the premiers and the prime minister to to get the ADF involved in a number of things. Mm. So they've gone to fix that. Uh, early detection, I think, is really important. We've got to be smarter at detecting fires early, and we've got towers and triple O, you know, you ring triple O now, but there's got to be some other systems in there, and we've got to use aircraft more effectively to keep, of what I say, all, fire, all, all fires should be kept small to allow the ground crews to get in and do what they've got to do, which is what you talked about before, about effective use of volunteers. And the worst thing we can do is not have enough resources to keep a small fire small. And the aircraft does that. An aircraft normally doesn't put a fire out. What it does is it brings it to some level of containment that the ground crews can get in and do the work they've got to do. Uh, we've got to look at the built environment, and, there's some, and I've been involved with the Bushfire um, Building Council of Australia to look at ways to assist communities to better um, assess their properties in a more informed way of how then to apply solutions. You know, when you're building a, putting a deck on the back of a house, uh, you know, build it in a way that it's fire resistant because quite often the landscape or the deck 
or the steps outside of the thing that catch fire first and then burn the house down. So how do we how do we we know these things? So we, we've done some work with CSIRO. How do we improve those things? And I think the ones that um, I found really good in the in the Royal Commission it was all good, but is it went to community resilience as I mentioned before. It's gone to recovery, um, and many of the other Royal Commissions have missed those parts, the recovery bit, they looked at the preparedness response, but not the recovery. And it's gone to the the mental health issues of what fire, what trauma brings in a mental health way. And it's also talked about air quality. And, you know, we've got, in our summer, we've got heat and heat waves, we've got bushfires and we've got smoke. And the figures in the report confirm that 429 people died above the normal death rates directly related from uh, smoke and respiratory issues. Now, that's a staggering figure, yeah. a staggering figure, I think, to see that all of a sudden we need better warning systems and better advice to people about smoke. Mm. And, you know, you think about it, if you go to New South Wales, and I'll use New South Wales so it's not a Victorian story, but the Blue Mountains is on fire, the people that live in downtown Sydney go, oh, isn't it bad that the Blue Mountains is on fire? However, this year, not only were the Blue Mountains on fire, most of New South Wales is on fire, and the urban areas, the downtown Sydney area of Wollongong and Newcastle, let alone Canberra, were covered in smoke day after day, night after night, and it seriously impacted on the health um, outcomes of, of metropolitan areas. So all of a sudden, the people that are living in downtown Austin were going, these fires are really terrible, you know, <laughs> because they were being impacted by smoke, whereas before it was that sort of simple, and I'm, I'm not being, I'm almost, I'm not being disrespectful when I say this at all, but it, it's almost it was someone else's problem, the fires up the hill. Mm. But when the smoke's there day after day, it was, then, it was in their backyard and it became their problem as well. So, yes. And I've done work in California and, you know, San Francisco gets very, very, very focused. The Bay Area gets very focused on air quality, like seriously focused on air quality. And they will say to the governor over there, you put these fires out. We've had day after day of smoke. Enough's enough. So I think we're seeing a change in the community about, um, you know, our understanding of our own health issues to do with smoke, let alone bushfires, let alone heat. So, yeah, so, so it, it, it's, this is why I keep saying it's complex. We shouldn't be scared of it. We've just got to take it serious to understand that this is all impacting on us in some way. Mm, yes. So, well, yeah. That's a, such a great point. I really am glad that you brought up um, bushfire smoke because I know that, um, you know, there were pregnant women who were concerned because that re- increases the risk of their babies being born prematurely. Um, and we did see, uh, you did mention there that, up to 429 premature deaths, 3,320 hospital admissions for cardiovascular and respiratory conditions, um, 1,523 presentations to emergency departments for asthma. And what was also quite staggering to me was the health costs of smoke exposure just from those bushfires resulted in $1.95 billion in health costs, um, which is staggering as well. So, yeah, it it was something I think we all took for granted, which was, well, of course we'll have good quality air um, and and this couldn't possibly be longer than a day or so. And because it dragged out for so long and masks were running out, um, N95 masks were running out and people were rushing to buy air purifiers, it really did bring home the fact that these 
um, bushfire seasons are going to affect us in more than one way. And then they're going to be far more than the way that we have seen them, you know, affect property, affect life, affect um, wildlife as well. Um, but, yeah, it was quite shocking to see the sustained effects of a, about 19 weeks' worth of continuous fire activity. Um, I did want to ask yeah. about then thinking forward and looking at these recommendations. And as you say, it is um, the report is 594 pages long um, and there's a lot, <clears throat> a lot more to it as well with addendums. But um, I did want to say in terms of looking at the upcoming bushfire season and looking at the recommendations and the priorities, obviously the headline is climate change is making these um, bushfires you know, accelerate, um, they're increasing in severity and duration, and that the federal government and all governments and the community has to address climate change. Um, but what are some of those other things that we should be thinking about? I know you've mentioned that there's complexity um, and perhaps long-term structural change, but what are some of the things we immediately should think about um, with the upcoming bushfire season? And perhaps we already have, hopefully, thinking about things like, you know, aerial firefighting capabilities. We all learned just how much you need to plan ahead for that. Um, but, you know, how much have we learned and do we need, what are some of the things that we should be thinking about with this report um, in the short to medium term? Yeah, look, it's really interesting. I've had that asked to me a number of times. If I go back as a community member, um, one is I think it comes back to know your risk, um, know what to do, be, be proactive about you and your community, you and your family and your community about what you're going to do when there's bushfires. This year we've had rain. It's going to be more of a traditional season in the sense that the fires will be more attached to the, you know, the traditional summer months, December, January, February. Mm -hmm. Grass fires this year, I think, will be fast moving. So there's plenty of growth in the grasslands and not all of that will be cut. A lot of the farmers will cut, but there'll still be grass around. Uh, and, you know, Australia, Victoria will always have a day, a series of days that's extremely hot, extremely windy, and therefore the bushfire risk is there. They're the days you've got to make decisions and, you know, one, have a plan, two, make sure you know where to get the information, you know, Good, an early decision is a good decision when it comes to fires. Uh, and you know, where are you going to do? Who's the vulnerable community members? And it changes. You know, if the kids are at school, it's a different plan than if we're away on holidays. So the December plan compared to the January plan compared to the February plan is important to think through in that sense. Mm. You know, I'm down the beach, I'm on holidays, but I've still got a risk of fire versus. I'm back at school and the kids are going to be out of school at you know, 10 past three, who's picking them up, all those sorts of things. So so all of those are about circumstances and your ability to do things. So, so, so I always say that the plan's important, but the plan's got to be able to deal with the circumstances and you need to know where to get information. You know, we live in a world that it's, it's just in time information in our, in our palms. Get the right apps, the Victorian Emergency Apps 1. The Bureau app is important, I think, to understand weather conditions. And certainly look at four days out. Don't just plan the night before. Plan every four days, look at the cycle and go, where are we going to be? You know, what's coming? Well, Saturday's going to be the hot, windy day. Okay, what are we going to do Friday about Saturday? Those sort of things are important. Um, that's the practical stuff. Uh, we can do those things. The Royal Commission will, um, some of the recommendations will help us do those things. The other things are, like you mentioned aircraft, like 
you know, in the in the report, it talks about building an industry. I fully support that. Uh, an Australian-based air, uh, you know, fire bombing aviation industry that's bigger than we've currently got. Um, and the reason for that is that the large air tankers that do travel the globe, you know, the, the large helicopters and large fixed wings, um, they're, they're under pressure to be all over the place. You know, they're, they're in South America. Oh, I know at the moment there's aircraft in, in India, uh, sorry, Indonesia, uh, California, Bolivia, Chile, that would all circle the globe and come to Australia at some point in time. Mm-hmm. Those seasons are getting are getting longer in other parts of the world. That's why we need to build some capability that is owned and operated in Australia, create jobs in Australia, and then, you know, in our off-season, borrow it out to other parts of the world. But let's build something that is Australia. We're one of the biggest fire-prone countries in the world, and we should be doing it. And, you know, that's also about building jobs. You know, it's, a, it's an industry approach, which is fantastic. Mm, so absolutely. I think there's a lot, there's a lot there. This year, the Royal Commission will have limited impact on the way in which we fight fire because it's only been published. That's why I think people need to get back about their circumstances and use the systems that are there today to help them to make decisions. Yeah, that's really such a great point that you're talking about circumstances and how they change you know, month to month, week to week, even day to day. So um, that's something that I think when you're putting together a fire plan, you may make it quite universal and not realise that you need to take into account all of these variations. Absolutely. Especially, you know, if you, you think of a family, how dynamic a family is now. Even what you're doing on a Friday is totally different than what you're doing on a Saturday. So just the day of the week. <laughs> yeah. And then remember that fire, fires don't just burn because of the conditions we're seeing in the afternoon. And I think that's a traditional thing that everyone thinks, oh, the worst bit will be at four o'clock in the afternoon. It's not. The conditions now are conducive that fires will run hard in the night and through the night. And, yeah, we've seen that over the last, we talked about it before, over the last, you know, two decades um, of, of the change of fire behaviour that isn't just an afternoon issue. It's, it's certainly, it's beyond that. Yeah. yeah. Um, Craig, I'm so grateful to you for chatting and to share your deep expertise and knowledge and also um, to give us insights we couldn't possibly have from anyone else except someone in your really um, excellent position of knowledge. So I'm really grateful to you for taking the time out to chat with us today. And I'm sure I have many other questions I won't get to ask, unfortunately, but um, I am grateful that you're advocating as you are with your colleagues, the Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, um, who include Greg Mullins and Neil Bibby and a number of others, um, so many, in fact, that it's almost, I think, around 34 people in the group now. Um, so thank you for doing um, a great work of uh, communicating with us still, even in your um, retirement from at least being the commissioner. And, um, yeah, I hope that you have a safe and um, and hopefully enjoyable uh, summer and hopefully not too many um, bushfires, but, you know, we'll have to wait and see. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.